You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. introduction. I'm very pleased to see so many of you here and my name is Sabine Lang. I direct the Center for West European Studies and the European Union Center here at the Jackson School and I'm really delighted uh, that we're able to welcome Sarah Lohman here and her co-authors, co-contributors to this amazing volume that couldn't be more timely and uh, more pertinent to where we are today. So what Ukraine taught NATO about hybrid warfare, a handbook of mitigation strategies for energy security is what we're here to celebrate and to hear more about. Um, Sarah Lohman, as many of you might know, has been a cherished colleague here at the Jackson School for the past two years as a um, acting assistant professor. Um, she has contributed on so many fronts. Uh, it's tough to, to really uh, uh, tell you about them all. I would like to highlight her involvement with task force, her involvement with getting our students published in her diverse classes that she taught, uh, her collaborations with PhD students, so um, a big thank you from our side for that, Sarah, and all the more happy uh, to have this occasion to celebrate this book. CWES and the European Union Center are particularly interested in um, continuing collaboration because we just got awarded a three-year grant for the European Union Center of Excellence for investigating European Common Security. So you will see the acronym UCOS floating around the Jackson School for the next three years, European Common Security, which we intend to explore in three areas, starting with energy security this year, then going on to cybersecurity and to space security in the following years. And Sarah, as well as our other cherished expert on energy security, Scott Montgomery, have kindly agreed to work on a workshop for us for the European Union Center next March. So all of this to say that we're really happy we can be involved with this and with you on this book and uh, on all the other collaborations that came from it. And with this, and a big thank you, I'm turning this over to Sarah Lawrence to moderate and introduce the book. Thank you, Sabina, thank you so much. Um, it's really a great pleasure to be here today and to really recognize the great effort of the students as well in this collaborative project. We started this research project really three years ago from NATO headquarters. So it was initially just a research project that I and a few faculty members were involved in, 
And uh, then I was able to pull some of uh, my, my cherished students into the project to do some of the basic research. So on the front end, there were 11 case studies done by students, uh, both from communications as well as from uh, the Jackson School that were able to look at specific NATO countries and look at where cyber vulnerabilities were. So we started looking at Russia's hybrid warfare, uh, not knowing that Russia would actually be invading, but we uh, painted basically a picture and maps of across NATO of where we thought Russia would target. And unfortunately, um, our predictions were actually very accurate. In fact, this book, uh, which is 330 pages, don't feel the pressure to read through the whole thing, it's divided up like a handbook. So that's the really exciting thing, is you can flip through if you wanna look at where's the problems, that's the first section, how do you solve them, that's the second section, and if you wanna look at maps in terms of what kinds of things are being targeted, that's the third section, that's what the students did, which was absolutely fabulous. Um, and so you can use it like a handbook, and it's already being used in the field in Europe by different commanders um, in that way. So that's the exciting thing, is that our work is very policy relevant and it's being used in the field. Um, so as Sabina was saying, this is really uh, the time to be looking at these kinds of risks. It's the time to be looking at these kinds of recommendations, and for the last 15 years, Moscow has been conducting a hybrid war against the West. So beginning with the unprecedented cyber um, attack on Estonia in 2007, and then today, especially since Russia's second invasion of Ukraine beginning in February of this year, that hybrid war has only escalated. Um, so you're looking at everything from kinetic attacks, but they're being timed with uh, malign influence, specific disinformation campaigns, um, information manipulation, malign finance, economic coercion, and cyber operations. And then uh, as we know, and this will be especially interesting for the Q&A section with Frank, because he worked on Poland, um, Russia's massive missile attack on Ukrainian energy infrastructure has had an impact on neighboring countries, and recently we did see some of the fallout of all of that spill over to Poland, and also um, electricity being cut in Moldova. So, you know, those are specific ramifications of, of some of what's going on, but we're seeing the NATO member states actually being hit by some of the economic implications as well. Um, so the main questions we're asking in this book are what are the systematic dependencies and cyber vulnerabilities in energy critical infrastructure throughout Europe, and how could they impact NATO's political stability and security? Um, do they place military effectiveness or deterrence at risk? And so. Um, those are really the subjects we're trying to unpack today. Um, and so this is, this is how it's gonna run. I'm gonna talk briefly about an overview of the book and just a couple of the solutions we are looking at. Then I'm gonna turn it over to Chuck um, for looking at Internet of Things. Uh, then Milagro will talk about um, their Romania case study and Frank will talk about uh, his Poland case study. And then we'll have hopefully a lot of time for questions and answers and just a brainstorm and a, and a discussion about this. Um, I will introduce each author right before they talk, um, just so that you have in mind really what they're doing. <laughs> All right, so uh, what does this hybrid war look like? Basically, there's, there's three landmarks that we found. Um, it's targeting the emerging technology environment, and Chuck is gonna talk a little bit more about that. 
It's using cyber attacks and kinetic attacks as two sides of the same sword, and it's leveraging information operations and malign influence to create greater impact. So what do I mean by that? I'm, I'm talking about disinformation and then also fostering that misinformation um, specifically planted as part of that hybrid warfare campaign. All right, so, so first of all, the emerging technology environment. Um, we're, we're looking at that in the energy critical infrastructure um, environment really because malicious cyber actors, whether nation states or cyber criminals, are, are taking advantage of the vulnerabilities created by the Internet of Things. Um, so we're talking about smart grids, we're talking about renewable energy sources, and the IT and the operational technology environment, um, basically in that situation being able to be compromised remotely. Um, and this this landscape has really been tested and attacked quite a bit in the early months of the war in both the Ukraine and NATO. Um, and we're, we're seeing that from Russian-backed tagger groups um, who've targeted satellites, wind turbines, um, thermal processing plants, coal uh, power plants. And we've seen it, though, in the years uh, actually leading up to this. So there were a lot of red flags, but we know that um, there were Russian-backed intrusions into the grid, both here in the United States as well as Germany um, in the years before uh, this latest war. And we also are aware that um, there have been specific uh, cyber espionage on everything from oil to gas to energy to nuclear power plants and utility companies um, also in the years preceding. And that cyber espionage can result in something where the physical impact is not yet known. That means they might know things about our industrial control systems, like basically the remote control system, if you will. Um, they may know about how those things work and will wait to pull the trigger until their back is totally up against the wall. So that's all part of this um, gray warfare, this hybrid warfare, um, that pattern. And then secondly, Russia's targeting energy security through cyber means in tandem with kinetic attacks. So what, what we're seeing is really a 24 to 48 hour time period um, where you have cyber on the front end or on the back end um, in tandem with those physical attacks, those, those explosions that are all over the screen. Now that the Russian leadership has focused on, um, you know, the, the big explosions, that's something that everybody understands and acknowledges, but a lot less reported is what they've actually continued to do on the cyber end. So they did early in the war actually do a major cyber attack on Ukraine's grid. Ukraine was better equipped, and there were actually a number of NATO member states that helped them out um, on the defensive side with that. Um, but it's not that, that the cyber attacks or the malicious cyber intrusions have gone away. Um, they, are, they are sometimes less reported, um, and they're still having an impact, though. Um, the cyber espionage, we don't want to like downplay that, because just because something is not physically disrupted yet doesn't mean it doesn't still have a consequence. So we know that in the two years leading up to the invasion of Ukraine, Russia was already active, and it was going into the systems of... Germany, of the United States, of Turkey, and of Norway, and the United Kingdom, um, looking into those systems, um, also looking to see, you know, to what extent are, are those countries that are most supportive of Ukraine 
to what extent are they going to be able to respond to uh, these types of attacks. Um, so a great many num number of the, the malicious cyber intrusions aimed at Ukraine's partners, NATO member states, and then finally the disinformation campaign. So Russia's used information operations and malign influence um, to create a global energy crisis, and that's in impacted all kinds of things. That's impacted food security, that's impacted the supply chain, um, transportation and logistics, and that specifically impacts NATO's militaries, right? So um, whether that means holding gas supply hostage, um, using disinformation to try to divide allies, or reframing their war of aggression, um, you know, that, that reliance of the West on uh, the gas and oil, um, Russia's use for geopolitical purposes. And then finally, the Russia-China partnership of um, convenience. We have seen that occasionally um, China has helped Russia in terms of making sure that the sanctions um, don't have as much of an impact on Russia. And they've also technologically, concretely helped um, uh, Russia during this war. So, for example, China's helped Russia to track Chinese-made drones being used on the battlefield in Ukraine and exerted its own control over the critical infrastructure and supply chain of NATO member states with a certain timing um, that has supported Russia. Okay, next slide. Okay, these are the immediate military impacts. Um, so uh, the first thing that we found, and this is, again, I wanna uh, praise the student work, students' work on this, because each student went through and uh, specifically looked at how uh, the cyber early warning systems were functioning in each country. So they looked to see are they being effective, what kind do they have there, um, and what we found was the systems in place to mitigate cyber attacks on energy critical infrastructure were not sufficient. So why is that? That's because the energy critical infrastructure that's out there um, is incorporating a lot of new emerging technology for which this kind of um, cyber early warning has not been developed yet um, in terms of incorporating that new emerging technology environment. Um, and in some cases, it was just not up to standard, right? So it was looking at threats of the past and not looking to the future. Um, and so we're predicting it's gonna take a good decade before that is implemented um, at one standard across uh, NATO member states. Secondly, supply chain dependencies. So they were reliant on systems of, of host nations um, and uh, so often serviced by contractors. A lot of the private sector products um, had different cyber standards, so that was also a big weakness uh, that we saw as well. And then finally, um, the impact of cyber vulnerabilities on energy critical infrastructure and the Alliance military uh, effectiveness, it was impacting or is impacting uh, troop mobility. So you see that uh, specifically, for example, with the fuel crisis. You see that also though um, with a lot of the uh, um, ports, uh, rail, aviation, nuclear facilities, and, and water distribution um, because of compromised energy. Um, and that we predict will ha happen into the future. So just real briefly, two solutions that I looked at, and uh, next slide, to take care of these problems. So what were the problems again? 
one, energy dependent. So we're looking at a solution for energy independence. And secondly, uh, the problem of, um, of cyber, so of, of cyber early warning. So in terms of the energy independence, um, had the last uh, couple of years, I've actually been on secondment as a visiting professor to the Army War College. And um, during that time, I've had the opportunity to go and look at different sites. And they're, they're looking at microgrids as cr uh, creating new energy independence. So the question there was, can microgrids provide the resilience that's needed when they island off those foreign nation grids? And what we found was a lot of times um, that cybersecurity was not built into the front end. So even if they had a microgrid, and even if they could go ahead and um, when, a, when a host nation grid was down, let's say you know, we're expecting in Germany to have rolling blackouts this winter um, due to the energy crisis. Um, so a lot of communities are looking at setting up microgrids so that they can have their own independent energy. But even if they do that, because cybersecurity is not built into the front end, <laughs> if they island off, they have the same problem. They can be just as equally attacked. And so that was one, one thing that we found actually frequently in Europe was that it wasn't part of the um, design on the front end. That's different than what we found in the US. Sometimes it was built into the front end, but you had the challenge of being fuel dependent. So those microgrids were dependent on fuel and obviously looking to the future, we want those to be more renewables dependent. Um, second solution, that we looked at was uh, cyber early warning. And here we really did cutting edge research. So we looked, um, we, we created kind of in writing a prototype for cyber early warning and um, looked at creating virtualization, for example, of a gas pump and then allowing artificial intelligence and machine learning to help us uh, continue looking to the future. So instead of just looking at the patterns of cyber attacks that we've seen in the past, looking at how to defeat those in the future. Um, so finally, um, NATO does have an opportunity to learn from Russia's hybrid warfare, even as conflict is spilling into NATO nations. But we're really going to need more resilience planning. We're going to need resilience planning for energy independence, and we're going to need information sharing across uh, member states on Russia's disinformation campaigns. And we'll also need to invest in next generation early warning to help ensure there's a stronger defense uh, to, this, to this hybrid war to this point. Um, with that, I'd like to turn it over to Chuck. Now, Chuck has been a huge value added to this project. Um, he is in charge of all things IoT on this <coughs> campus, and he was just fabulous in, in helping with the whole project and reading over chapters and, and telling us where you know, we're getting things right or wrong, speaking at some of our conferences. And uh, he's also, by the way, the author of his own book, Managing IoT Systems for Institutions and Cities. And uh, he wrote about vulnerabilities here uh, in this book due to the uh, Internet of Things. So with that, over to you. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna bring the light up just for my bit. And I'm, I'm, uh, I don't have slides, but a little bit show and tell. So you might have heard of the Internet of Things. I'm gonna check the time here. You might have heard of the Internet of Things in the news also called uh, IoT. And sometimes in this space, we'll call it operational technology. But it, it's a result of the past decades of the technology explosion. We get uh, more and more technology. We get more and more computing power. We get miniaturization. We have more and more network things. But what, that, what that's resulted in is the ability to, uh, to sense and actuate different things in our environment that are built in our environment. Like you look right here, this right here, 
I can see that fire alarm, I can see that camera, I can see an ethernet cable going down to that projector. That thing's loaded. Um, so, so it's all around us in the HVAC. And then there's, there's medical uses, yet you hear about docs uh, tweaking pacemakers now without having to go inside, you know, they, they, they do it with their phone. It's, so it's, uh, and it's, it's in our homes, all the stuff, you have the Alexas and all that, it's, that's all IoT. The IoT we're gonna talk about here, we're gonna reference it largely as operational technology, is the IoT that's associated with uh, critical infrastructure and industrial control systems. So why, so if there is critical infrastructure, there is IoT. Even if it's an old system, they'll be retrofitting, and anything new is going to have IoT. And the reason for that, that IoT, because it allows the operator, let's say it's a refinery and a pipeline. It allows you to sense and control things in that refinery or pipeline like you never could before. So it gives you the possibility for increased efficiency, increased effectiveness, uh, increased profitability, increased uh, uh, public and worker safety. There's a, there's, there's a lot of potential benefits that IoT can bring. The, I mean, and part of, part of why that's true is because it exists on these networks that we have everywhere. The challenge, the risk that it gets brought is it's on the networks that we have everywhere. The same kinds of, the same kinds of networks. I've got one thing I actually brought from my office today. This is a little show and tell. This is, so, the, so these, these sensors could be temperature sensors, humidity sensors, power sensors, light sensors, vibration sensors, whatever. And actuators could be something that controls the pump, turns it on or off or brings it up or down. But here's one that's actually from on campus here. This, uh, uh, this one was broken, so I borrowed it. But you'll see, this, this is a power meter that goes into one of the, uh, 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 to a building here. And if you look on the back, you'll see that there's high power, uh, high voltage lines coming in, but there's also an ethernet cable. And so picture, and we're not talking like 10 or 12 of these, in, in a, we'll go back to the uh, uh, refinery or petroleum example, but picture uh, tens, hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of these all over the place. So in this, um, so this, it's, it senses power, it's networked, and it computes. So th this is a computer, and this is actually one of the bigger ones. You know, picture, uh, you guys can pass it around if you like, um, but picture an IoT device being the size of your thumb. They're just all over the place, and it's a networked computing device. So that's, that's the world that we're in now. What we, what we, um, let me take a step back. So when these things get deployed in a critical infrastructure, there'll be a lot of sensing, again, say thousands of sensors, that, that will come up into a, a, a server, a computer server, that collects that data and does some initial stuff with it. Then it'll go off and do some data management. Then it'll go off and do some analysis. And it'll go off and maybe do some AI things. And then it'll put it back out for subsequent systems or for operational issues like a dashboard or a report or something. So that's all supporting that critical infrastructure. What that does, that creates a chain. And that chain is, in this context, what we care about, that chain is attackable. From here, the sensors to where it's being collected, to where the data is being managed, to where analysis is being done, to where it's being pushed out, that's attackable pieces. And if we, as we know about chains, it, it tends to be if we break part of the chain, we might break the whole chain. And that critical infrastructure now has that dependency on this IoT. So I'm, I'm not saying don't do IoT, but I'm saying what we, what we bring to it it, it brings new risk to us. And a couple of other things real quick. Um, we also tend not, often to not deploy this stuff really well because it's so new and it's so fast and there's so many, uh, there's so many pieces that are out there, so many parts. The, uh, the people that traditionally install the stuff out in the environment, uh, facilities operators, for example, you know, they'll install it in a, in a boiler room on a tower, in a tunnel, uh, in a, a refinery. 
But those aren't traditional IP, IT people, and IT people aren't doing that. So we have these two worlds of operational technology and inter, uh, I, traditional IT being slammed together. And they're, they have different backgrounds, they're culturally very different. And I, I, this is a subject of the next book that I'm writing, I believe that's a national security issue because we don't, we don't have enough skill set there to support this, this growth. Yeah. Oh, and then I wanted to comment also, and we have supply chain issues here too. Like that thing that's going around there, there's a piece of hardware in there, and there's going to be multiple layers of software. Where'd that stuff come from? So I'm, with these things, when you work in the, the kind of work that we do, my colleague, Pete Kravitz, is back in the back there. When you do this kind of work, you work hard to not be doom and gloom, but at the same time, you're trying to say it's, it's not a good environment right now. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Perfect. Um, and just one sentence to add on to the back of that. One way we've seen Ukraine actually be able to defend themselves and learn from 2014 was several of their, or, or the majority of their ICS right now, their industrial control systems, um, are not uh, connected with, I, they're manually run. And so that's actually protected them from a number of the attacks. Um, and we're going on to Milagro now. He has a master, they have a master of communication and digital media and a bachelor's degree from Central Washington University in cinematography and film. They wrote the chapter on Romania and what I especially appreciated about Milagro was their ability to think outside the box. I was so excited to have them come from communications over to um, the Jackson School for the class that contributed to this. So thanks again, Milagro, over to you. Hi everyone. Um... I, uh, so as it was mentioned, I come from the communication department. I was part of the communication leadership program, studying for my master's uh, in communication and digital media. Um, so to be placed in this setting was very uh, interesting. I hadn't really dealt with um, anything of this nature before, I'd like to say. Um, and I'd had Sarah before in a class regarding big data, which was sort of the bridge into working on this case study for Romania. Um, so a bit of background about Romania. Um, it is, uh, it's located in the Black Sea region. It's at the crossroads about of three pan-European transportation corridors, and it has one of the largest and deepest ports in the region in the form of Constanta. Um, Romania's electric mess. I'm getting tongue-tied. Um, their electricity mix was, um, at the time, one of the most balanced across Europe, with about 42% of its electricity production coming from renewable energy. And as of 2019, the top three energy sources within the country were hydropower, coal, and gas and oil. Uh, as I was putting together the research for this case study, um, Romania was planning to increase renewable energy capacity across the board through the construction of new facilities and repowering projects, where technology and older renewable infrastructures would be upgraded or replaced completely. Uh, this increase in capacity was estimated to power or would be estimated to power an additional 1,800,000 homes. Um, Next slide. Um, Sorry, kill the lights. He's good at it. I've been trained. So, 
This, um, this focus on repowering and introducing this new technology into aging infrastructures um, created a sensitive transition period for Romania um, it, that introduced the risk of hybrid attacks that would target smart grid infrastructure and renewable energy facilities. Um, during my research, the challenges that uh, were introduced by this transition period included uh, the risk of permanent damage to older electrical grids due to cyber attack on installed smart grid technology, um, the introduction of vulnerabilities into smart grids via improperly sourced components, uh, the possibility of major disaster events caused by hybrid attacks targeting smart grid connected power facilities, such as the Cernovoda nuclear power plant or one of Romania's 13 hydroelectric dams, um, and the potential targets introduced by the development of offshore energy facilities in Romania's exclusive economic zone in the Black Sea. Um, as technology was introduced to a majority of these larger, older um, facilities and tech um, that created bridges for any bad actors to essentially uh, launch a hybrid attack or a cyber attack and take apart these very um, these older uh, older facilities in a way that would cause damage to uh, a vast majority of Romanians. Um, so at the time of the writing, um, my research regarding Romania's energy transition across smart grid infrastructure and renewable energy led to these recommendations that hope to address the coming challenges. Number one being that um, Romania's early warning system at the time was a little ambiguous and needed to be finalized um, uh, and implemented as soon as possible. In the interim, creating uh, temporary computer emergency response teams to oversee critical sectors such as uh, the Constantas port operations or sensitive energy production facilities such as the Cernovoda nuclear power plant. Um, upgrading older physical components in uh, step with uh, introducing new tech uh, to strengthen the resilience of the aging electrical grid in the event of a hybrid attack. Uh, uh, another recommendation was creating an oversight group to vet components being used in repowering and smart grid project projects to reduce the risk of hardware or software vulnerabilities being introduced with the installation of this new tech. Uh, and finally, um, increasing Romania's uh, EEZ security as offshore development projects progressed due to Russia's presence in the waters surrounding the Crimean Peninsula. Um, I, those recommendations were after uh, spending a whole quarter being able to take this project um, from start to finish. Well, um, and uh, as just a kind of few final words, I uh, appreciated this opportunity to really dig in and um, get, to ex I get to be part of a project that uh, I otherwise probably would have never even considered being a part of. Um, so I have to thank Sarah for inviting me. And uh, yeah, I uh, appreciate you all for coming out tonight. And uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Well done. And one of the interesting things is 
those areas that were plotted on Milagro's map a couple slides back, those indeed end up being the, the areas that have been vulnerable to, to Russia's hybrid warfare over the last month. So um, his prediction, uh, their predictions were right on. Frank uh, is the next speaker. So Lieutenant Colonel Frank Kosminski is an active duty army officer and strategist. His research will focus on European space activity, collective security, and strategy. Uh, he's actually a native of Poland, so uh, perfect for the Polish chapter, and Frank immigrated to the United States in 1990. He attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York, and graduated in 2004 with a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering. He was commissioned actually as an infantry officer and served in multiple operational assignments around the world and in 2014 earned his master in public administration from Harvard University and served on the, uh, the army staff at the Pentagon. And prior to attending the Jackson School, um, where he's, he's a PhD student here, uh, Frank was a strategic plans officer at Joint Base Lewis-McChord not far from here and without further ado we'd love to hear about Poland. Thank you Sarah and uh, before I begin I just want to uh, begin with a standard disclaimer that uh, my comments here and those that I wrote in the book uh, are my own they don't necessarily reflect those of the US Army or, or the US government uh, and so uh, with that said um, I'll just begin very very briefly to talk about um, this idea of hybrid warfare uh, and, and kind of Poland's view of, of what it means to be engaged in, in, in uh, an ongoing hybrid conflict. And we think about hybrid, hybrid warfare as, as a mix of overt military activities and other activities below the, the threshold of, of conflict uh, to achieve uh, a broader political aim. Uh, the, the acute conflict in Ukraine right now is actually part of a much broader Ru Russian effort that's been ongoing for uh, at least since 2008, if not sooner, if not before. Um, to uh, reestablish re kind of dominion or, or over the near abroad, the former Soviet bloc, and uh, also, and importantly, uh, undermine uh, the credibility of NATO, the European Union, uh, and other Western institutions, and, and specifically the, uh, the, the global standing uh, and, and security primacy of the United States as like the security partner choice in Europe. And in terms of Poland, specifically from its geographic position, uh, the country really sees itself as being on the front line of this conflict, not only for NATO, but for the European Union. And uh, it is not only, uh, does, it not only shares uh, hundreds of kilometers of, of borders with Russia, Ukraine, and, and Belarus, which of course is, is very friendly to, to the Russian regime. Um, it's also, that is also what makes it one of the principal staging grounds for NATO forces to, to reassure the eastern flank and, and deter further Russian aggression. In this position, therefore, uh, and, and Poland's energy uh, mix and, and sources of energy, which we'll talk about here in a second, are, are what really make Poland a lucrative target in this hybrid conflict. Uh, because Putin very, very clearly understands Poland is part of NATO, the activities going on in that country and in other NATO countries, uh, but in Poland in particular, are those below that threshold of military conflict, which when structured as part of this broader hybrid campaign, uh, <coughs> facilitate the, the Russian regime's effort to, uh, to, to undermine these Western institutions. Uh, next slide, please. 
And so this, this slide really kind of talks about the, 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 the current kind of energy production mix in Poland. Um, and, and, and the bottom line is that as of 2021, 70% uh, of Poland's domestic energy production requirements came from coal. Now that sounds like a lot, but it's a lot less uh, than 2010, which was 87%. And, and this of course is a, uh, is, is a Polish commitment uh, to, to step away from coal uh, by 2050 uh, to meet the EU goals of, of uh, some of the climate, uh, climate goals that the EU agreed to. Uh, but of course, um, part of that uh, stepping away from coal means other bridging technologies, including natural gas, much of which Poland imported from Russia up until uh, the conflict uh, began, and also uh, growth in renewable energy sources. Um, the, the, the challenge, of course, uh, with the conflict is that it really illustrates the vulnerability of Poland's vulnerability and the EU's vulnerability in, in depending on, on Russian energy sources, particularly coal and especially natural gas, uh, to the point where uh, the Polish president has, has called this, uh, has referred to this dependency not only for Poland but of Europe as a tool of blackmail. And, and indeed, we've seen a global energy crisis resulting from um, the energy manipulation and the coercion uh, going on between um, the supply of, of, of energy uh, to Western Europe and, and, and Poland, particularly as, as, the, um, as the seasons change. Uh, next slide, please. And so in terms of the threats and vulnerabilities uh, in this kind of broader hybrid campaign, um, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has really exposed uh, the fragility, how, the, how fragile Europe's energy infrastructure is. There's an acute problem in Poland, which as one of the main staging grounds for NATO forces and also one of the main uh, countries that has received uh, over seven and a half million Ukrainian refugees from the conflict. Um, as we enter this winter season, uh, th there is a risk of uh, b basically people not having enough energy, the country not having enough energy to heat their homes. Right now, uh, by some estimates, uh, approximately 60% of the Polish population, which is about 38 million people, does not have, is not, is not expected to have sufficient fuel uh, to, uh, to, to heat their homes this winter. And this, of course, is compounded by the fact that there are over 10,000 NATO, mostly U.S. troops, as part of the uh, Enhanced Forward Presence uh, NATO battle group, uh, deterring, uh, deterring that aggression. And so some of these activities that, that Russia is, is engaging, these hybrid activities that Russia is engaging in in Poland to kind of undermine uh, these, um, uh, these, these energy sources in particular, uh, include cyber attacks. Uh, you know, Chuck talked about the Internet of Things, and much of that renewable energy source infrastructure that's, that's being installed relies on commercial uh, SCADA and industrial control systems that have particular vulnerabilities um, that, that continue to be exploited, uh, as well as disinformation and energy supply man manipulation. Uh, one of Poland's uh, long-term energy projects is to develop a nuclear infrastructure uh, with the first nuclear power plant going online in, in about 2033. Uh, but ever since that project was announced, um, there's been disinformation uh, campaigns attributed to Russian actors uh, trying to sway the Polish uh, population away from uh, popular support for these nuclear reactors, uh, particularly with um, stories about leaking Soviet-era reactors in neighboring Ukraine uh, and, and, and Belarus, uh, 
as a way to um, to kind of undermine that that popular support. And um, so some of the mitigation measures uh, that that Poland is is implementing uh, is to accelerate its renewable energy source uh, infrastructure development with a goal of achieving fifty percent by twenty forty. Uh, but there's a supply chain, there's a manufacturing component to this as well. Expanding the smart grid, expanding liquid natural gas capacity on the Baltic, uh, expanding uh, uh, Baltic pipeline capacity. The Baltic pipe just went online last month. It won't reach full capacity until January. But again, that, there's a vulnerability there with, with that infrastructure piece. And then there's also the, um, the issue of uh, energy uh, and, and climate um, uh, policy within the EU. If we think back to the, the one of the Russian regime's long-term political objectives is to undermine Western institutions, and particularly the EU, the Polish government has already con gone back to Brussels and said, look, we're going to have to renegotiate some of these climate agreements and these climate targets for 2050 because of the, the war and the situation that, the energy situation that's going on. Uh, people are literally burning wood, which is very bad from a climate perspective, uh, to heat their homes. And there's, this has sparked further debate within, uh, within the EU uh, about uh, the integrity of, of the EU as an idea. Um, and uh, so uh, I'll just close by saying um, that for Poland, energy security is synonymous with national security, but they don't think about it in terms of energy independence as a goal, but energy sovereignty, which is really about um, having uh, control over uh, kind of the, the and the ability to decide the sources of energy and and how and where to uh, uh, acquire reliable energy sources and this may lead some within the the, the political right in Poland uh, that have already expressed in public some frustrations with with some of the EU mandated uh, climate policies uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few decades uh, and how that plays into uh, the broader hybrid campaign. Thank you. Thank you.